Welcome to another episode of The Breakdown. One of the conversations that's been going on quite a bit lately has to do with the impacts and effects of not only issues like houselessness, but issues like addiction. And unfortunately, to a lot of people's perspective, the provincial government has really dropped the ball in addressing these issues effectively, if not having moved the ball back down the field in the wrong direction. Uh, there's certainly been a lot of coverage of, of that recently. But in that void, there have been some grassroots organizations that have, have stepped up and started to do the work to make sure that people are accessing the care and the resources that they need. And we're very, very excited to have some representatives from one of those organizations here with us tonight. So tonight from Street Cats, we have Ali, Curtis and Julia, thank you guys all so much for being willing to take a little bit of time and chat with us. Thank you for having us. So I'm going to throw the first question to Ali, um, just because alphabetical is, is easy. Uh, and that's how I wrote the names down after I got them wrong. So to, to start with, Ali, can you tell what, what is Street Cats and how did it come to be a thing? Um, so Street Cats is a mutual aid organization. Um, we are all folks who have used substances or been directly impacted um, or have experienced houselessness. Um, some folks have some experience with sex work. Um, we just kind of, I don't know, I mean, really, it just started with an educational page on the internet because there's a huge lack of public awareness and public education in Alberta. We just don't have a lot of like radical representation. Um, a lot of people, there's just like, you see pages and you see websites and you see stuff from different provinces, but there's not a lot of like, this is just raw, uncut and in your face and telling you this is how do you inject or this is how you cook something or this is the safest way to consume one of your substances. Um, so it initially started just doing that. And from that, it came to a lot of folks messaging um, the social media and asking to be involved and how can they be involved? Can they send donations? Uh, what can they do? Um, so that grew into the idea of initially wanting to do like just a rapid overdose response team with on bikes, picking up sharps. Um, but we noticed that there was a huge need for food and clothes and all of the other things that come with mutual aid um, in the streets. So carts and on foot is how it actually originated. Um, everybody on the team is well-versed or taught about the harm reduction gear, the supplies, how to use them, how to reverse and um, recognize an overdose so everybody can do that. Um, we're also providing a space for street consumption if people are doing that, they're doing it already. So if they want a peer to hang out and just make sure that they're okay, nothing goes south, um, they recover from their consumption and then we'll let them have a good night and see you later. Um, it's kind of just whatever people need when we're chatting with them and how can we meet that need 
to the best of our ability with our very limited resources. Um, yeah. So it's a harm reduction outreach. <laughs> awesome. So now you're using a, a term there that I think a lot of people have heard, but I think there's also a lot of people that haven't heard it. And it kind of flies in the... I, I don't want to call it conventional because it is so evidence-backed that it, it is the sort of my understanding, and please correct me if I'm wrong, it is sort of the, the most effective philosophy in dealing with issues of, of addiction. But the term that you use there is harm reduction. Um, so can you kind of explain for our audience what is harm, what are, what are the, the broad principles of harm reduction? Um, I mean, the recognition that people are going to use substances or, for lack of a better term, engage in risky behavior. And what can we do as uh, either public health measure or just community members or individuals to try to reduce that harm? So whether it's skiing with a helmet, because concussions are bad and end up not being so awesome sometimes. Or if you need to wear a seatbelt because you're driving 120 on the highway and getting in an accident, getting thrown from that vehicle causes a bit more harm than that seatbelt. Um, so harm reduction is the movement into spaces where people use substances, have substance dependency, um, or are engaging in sex work. And so how do you reduce the harms in those types of environments. So reducing the spread of HIV, hep C, um, any STIs. How do you get into that community to provide testing, education, and create a space where people are at less risk of passing something to each other or okay. even just less risk of overdose. So how do we learn how to use our substances as mindful as possible, even though the supply is contaminated and really unpredictable. Okay. So would it be safe to say, I know that there's, for some people, there's a perception that a lot of the, the I'm going to go with behaviors, and if that's the wrong word, I apologize. Um, a lot of the behaviors that you're talking about are, are sort of fringe, high-risk um, behaviors. And if I understand correctly, what you're talking about is recognizing that, that people are going to engage in those for a variety of different reasons. And let's try to keep them as safe as possible and limit the harm by reducing it um, using measures that are, that are appropriate and evidence-based. Is that, is that a fair statement? Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah, people are going to do what people do. And if prohibition worked, it would have been eradicated in like the first 20 years. Um, so people are going to consume substances, whether it's within a dependency or leisure or to feel better. Some people take it for mental health. Um, a street physician is sometimes a lot easier to obtain than their real physician or I, a PhD. I, I, I hear that some people even find government work and elected office so stressful that that they sometimes use substances as well. That's what I'm I'm told. Curtis, um, what's how did you get to be? What's what's your story with Street Cats? Um, 
like Ali said, a lot of uh, people in our group, a lot of our volunteers are uh, people with um, lived experience, whether that's um, drug use ourselves or um, experience being unhoused or in sex work. Um, my story is uh, my lived experience is with drug use. Um, and um, yeah, so I used for quite a long time and um, I just got to a point where it wasn't just like numbers and statistics and all the scare tactics on the news anymore that uh, was impacting my life. It was, it was friends, um, people I cared about, you know, people around me all the time that were starting to drop. And I kind of took a look around me and realized that if I kept engaging in the sort of behaviors I was and in the sort of spaces I was putting myself in, um, I would be next and didn't really want that. So I uh, kind of stopped using so regularly and stopped using a lot of the substances I was using. And uh, I found myself in school for social work because just with all the experiences I'd been through, I thought, you know, I should do something to give back to my community and in the world and use kind of my knowledge and, and experience and my just general empathetic nature that I've had since I was a kid to uh, try to support people in my community. And uh, I kind of got involved in some other uh, mutual aid uh, organizations and initiatives and, uh, just through, um, I don't know, like going to protests for Save the SES. I see your shirt says you support SES in Alberta. Great shirt. Um, yeah, so through that kind of stuff, uh, I got to meet Allie. And one day I actually, I just reached out to her one day and said, you know what? I don't feel like I'm doing enough right now. I feel like I've hit a rut. I don't feel like I'm doing enough. I'm tired of just yelling about stuff on the internet. I, I want to do more in the community. And she was like, we're going out next week. We're starting Street Cats. And I was like, of course, I'll be there. And I've been there just about every week since. And yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, it's been really inspiring to see how much like we've been able to grow in just the short amount of time uh, we've been out. And uh, just like all the relationships we're building in the community with the with the folks we're out there uh supporting and with one another too it, like it feels like in like no time at all we've become like a little family and yeah like right now we're only able to go out once a week like Ali said this this thing doesn't fund itself and uh it um yeah, it gets expensive, but it's it's worth it. It's 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 worth all the work we put into it. And and the Wednesdays that we go out, Wednesdays are my favorite day of the week. I look forward to it like all week, every week. So yeah, that's kind of my story about how I got into this. Perfect. I want to sort of do the 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 same clarification because one of the things that I'm very mindful of, despite the fact that I'm wearing the shirt, is vernacular can sometimes be lost on people. So you use the phrase SCS. For our listeners who might not know what SCS or what abstract shirt Nate's wearing today, um, what is SCS? 
Uh, supervised consumption site. So it's a, a medical facility, a clinic. Sometimes they're in hospitals, like here in Calgary, our only one is in the Sheldon Schumer Hospital uh, downtown. Um, and yeah, it's just a, a place where there's trained staff, nurses, paramedics, um, that kind of thing, just to um, observe people when they're using. Cause I mean, like we know in the work we do, people are gonna use anyways and better to give them a clean place with clean supplies that someone is around that should give a shit about them that can save them if something goes wrong um, than to have them be using in a back alley where none of those supports are. And I don't know, like another common misconception I find with uh, SCS is that a lot of people are like, oh, it's just, you're just uh, enabling, you're just supporting them to use and you're not like encouraging them to better themselves or whatever thing people want to say. Um, and it's like, there's, there's resources like linking people up to uh, opportunities for housing, opportunities for for treatment programs if that's the route they want to go and like there's so many resources in an SES that that aren't there in the back alley or the McDonald's bathroom that it, it, it does it boggles my mind that people are still opposed to this kind of stuff it just it really does yeah it's and it's certainly something that we've seen a lot of misinformation and disinformation that's been propagated from a lot of sources, not the least of which is the current provincial government. Um, there's There was a couple of news stories that I saw today even um, where people were referencing the fact that the, the report, and I'm air quoting there, that uh, was produced, the, the, I like to call it the creme brulee report, um, but but that report has been largely panned and uh, completely disregarded. And we even saw with the, the Arches SCS uh, in Lethbridge that there was information that was straight up fabricated and false that resulted in that facility being closed. And that has resulted in a significant number of, of deaths, unfortunately. Um, the other thing I just want to sort of touch on real quick, because you kind of alluded to it there, is the unpredictability of some of the the substances that people are, are are using. And a lot of that has to do with with bad supply. So can you, for our audience, just kind of explain what bad supply is? Um, well, bad supply is, is, is what's out there right now. And it's a, a bad supply because um, it's unregulated. It's... Uh, you don't know you don't know what you're getting and it, like it 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 takes so many steps to get from like a coca plant in South America to a bag of cocaine in someone's pocket in Calgary Alberta Canada and so you don't know if like uh, uh, uh the the trafficker has already cut it with something and then a uh, big dealer cuts it and then street level, like people are just out there trying to survive and they're going to sell drugs to support their habit on the street. And sometimes people are going to cut things 
with stuff to make it go longer. And you, you, like when there's so many hands touching things and none of it's regulated and all of it's happening in the shadows for, for fear of uh, legal implications, nobody knows what's in it. And like when it's impossible to get even fentanyl drug testing strips, which only test whether or not there's fentanyl present. It doesn't tell you how potent it is, or it doesn't tell you if other substances are in there. We can't even get our hands on that stuff very easily as like an outreach group doing this work every week. So what do you think folks that are sleeping on the street have access to? So what, when we're talking about the, the bad supply piece, I just want to make sure that, that my understanding of, of things is correct. If I am a opiate user, uh, and I decide that I want to, to get my hands on some, some fentanyl or some heroin or, or whatever, um, I can't just go to the fentanyl store. I have to get it from some guy, and there's no quality control there. Is, 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 that, is that accurate? Or is there a fentanyl store that I'm missing? Um, I mean, I, I wish. That's probably a, a controversial statement to say, but whatever it is what it is that's that's my belief i i wish there was a fentanyl store for people to go to there's a liquor store there's cannabis stores now you can they look like apples a, you can go to a, you can go yeah exactly you can go to a fucking 7-eleven and, and get as many vape cartridges and and cigarettes as you want but people have to go to some guy like you said on the street and and they're dying because of it and like you say if you're uh, an opioid user and you want fentanyl and that's what you want that's great and and you know what if you're using regularly enough you have a tolerance and and that's fine and it's safe but if i'm a cocaine user and i want cocaine and i buy something on the street that's cut with fentanyl i'm another statistic yeah okay julia how did you come to be involved with Street Cats? Um, my story is not as interesting um, as the other two. Um, I was working on a different project um, called The Community with Ali, um, which is social change, education, and discussion. Um, and from that, I just started working um, on this with her. I previously didn't have really honestly any education on harm reduction, um, but I have taken the Street Cats classes. Um, that you need to take before you start volunteering. Um, and from not just the classes, but from luckily um, being friends with Allie and Curtis, um, another wonderful harm reduction people, um, I've just learned so much. Um, and yeah, that's what got me here, I guess. Okay, so now you, you said classes there, and this is something that I want to I wanna go down the, the, the rabbit hole of a little bit, because... I think that there are some people who look at some of these outreach groups um, and they go, ah, it's just a bunch of people throwing noodles at the wall to see what'll stick. But you guys are running classes before people can volunteer. Can, can one of you tell us a bit about those, those classes? 
Yeah. Um, so there's a few different ones. Um, Narcan training, obviously, um, is the big one. Um, I've taken that one twice, and I'm probably going to take every single one that's offered for new volunteers because um, learning to um, use a needle um, to me is nerve wracking. Um, but luckily, nasal Narcan, also an option. But again, that's not something that I don't think the government of Alberta funds, which is really unfortunate. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, Ali or Curtis, but um, and, <laughs> right. Um, but then also harm reduction classes, because um, dealing with harm reduction supplies, you have to know what each one is um, and how to use it or how it is used, which first of all, destigmatizes it, which I think is really important, but also prepares you for a situation where if anyone ever asked you for assistance or like asked you how to use it, asked you anything, you wouldn't be caught with your hands in the air. Um, so a fuller understanding of all the drug supplies. Um, and then we also did talk about, um, like, like, I'm not going to say drug contamination or like the contaminated supply. Um, Allie, do you want to tap in here for the classes? <laughs> She's doing. Um, yeah, so we do, we have sourced, um, some fentanyl testing strips. Um, so we do also teach how to use those so that we can teach other folks or sit with them um, and help them facilitate their own testing. Uh, we're the only province, I'm pretty sure, that doesn't have any low barrier testing spaces. The only testing that we do get is from the University of Calgary, which who knows when those drugs are obtained. They don't know what they're sold as. They don't give a lot of description. And then they send out an alert, which is unfortunate. Um, we replicate those because they're not readily available to the public. And I think it's important that the public just constantly has access to information like that. Um, we also do teaching on like de-escalation, how to approach people, how to be mindful and respectful of other people's space, um, how to be the least amount of invasive as possible because we're entering somebody else's space and need to be respectful of that. Um, because we are in a power differential. Many of us were unhoused at some point or in a lot of dependency, but we're all currently housed. We are all currently have either we're sober or we have control of our own use that we're able to be in a different situation. Um, and so we need to be mindful of that and what that looks like, how that approaches. Now I gotta. I want to explore that that a little bit, um, and the, in, in sort of two ways, because I think that there's a philosophy that you touched on there that that is is worth talking about. So one of the the big things that that we hear people talking about when they're talking about addiction issues is the idea that you have to meet people where they are. Um, but I, if I'm not mistaken you've kind of taken it a step further in that you're not only meeting people where they are, but you're also making sure that they're receptive. So there's almost a, to me, it almost sounds like there's a little bit of a, a an invitation that's going on there. Is that, am I wrong? Yeah, I think that's correct. Mm -hmm. Like um, we try to not over impede people's space. Um, if they're kind of hidden out, 
um, we might just send like one person who feels comfortable just approaching quietly um, and very discreet. We don't wear reflector vests. Um, like we need to be getting to a space where people feel confident and comfortable having us around. We're not the police, we're not anything. We're just there to give you a sandwich and things to make your use a bit safer. Um, if people are like, no thanks, and we just walk away. Like if they don't like, I mean, we all have bad days. Some of us get to have our bad days in our houses or in our private spaces. Um, if you have to have your bad day out in the street and there's nowhere to hide, you really just don't need somebody impeding on your space that you're trying to have. Um, and that just, I think it's just so important to respect that. And maybe next week they're in a different space and they want to chat or um, yeah, like we've had people come up and talk to us that didn't want to talk to us for weeks and weeks. And then now they're like, Hey, let's sit and chat. Like I've seen you here. I'm now trusting that I'm going to see you once a week. I know what you have um, to offer and it's nice to build those relationships. Okay. The other thing that I want to ask about, and then I'm going to run the, the virtual room on it, is you talked a bit about the, the de-escalation piece. Um, and, and this is something that I think is, is interesting. I mean, the, the approach that, that you guys are taking sounds like it's a very... Uh, I'm going to go with non-confrontational and I feel like I'm super watering it down by saying that, uh, but very respectful and, and very non-confrontational. Uh, but there are a lot of people who have this perception that, that other people who are experiencing houselessness are, are something to be feared. Um, so I'm curious if, if you guys are comfortable, how often do you have to, to use those de-escalation tactics and, and, have you ever experienced, like, how often are, are you fearful? I don't, I honestly don't think, because we do like, um, like a debrief after anything happens. Um, and no one's ever expressed fear, which is interesting. I never thought of that until now. Um, but there's always a learning experience in things for our group. Um, but every situation is also so different. Um, but the most volatile situations that we've had have not been with um, our clients, but with people who oppose what we do. Um, we have been yelled at. <laughs> we have been told many things. Um, people will approach us. People will bike up to us. People will yell at us. It's not necessarily like we do use de-escalation tactics when we serve clients, but it's mostly... Like it's very few and far in between that it's ever um, anything like the people who just really don't like what we're doing, um, which is unfortunate. I got to ask, like, <laughs> and I this is probably going to sound quite naive, but I can own that. Um, who's so bored that they need to get angry about somebody trying to help somebody who's navigating addiction and houselessness? Like, why would you... I, I, I don't understand why you would uh, stop helping people. Like, what what are they saying? Um, well, it's mostly the enabling argument that, um, or like, we are increasing crime. 
those are the two big ones. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's not like I, I don't know. Like I, I do. I have read some research that does show that um, harm reduction, like not. I guess it's not from a crime perspective, but from like a health perspective, like it's saving money. Um, but I don't. Yeah, I've never listened to someone yelling at us and I do really listen. I do. Um, but I've never listened to them and came back from it and thought like I've learned something. I had a point. <laughs> like I, I really do try and like take everything people say in, like, especially if you're very upset. But um, after like the second or third yeah. time I was yelled at, I think I'm over it. <laughs> you know? You're you're nodding your head quite a bit there, Curtis. So what's what's your take on that? Uh, I agree with what Julia's saying, uh, like uh, enabling, supporting crime, endorsing drug use for the, that one before too. Um, to my knowledge, I don't know of any evidence or research that shows a direct correlation between um, harm reduction or even uh, like a SPS or a OPS, which is an overdose prevention. Site, a pretty similar concept um, and increase in crime. Uh, that report that you use the air quotes from our provincial government, uh, it talked about uh, increase in crime in the area around the SES outside the Sheldon Schumer. The interesting thing there though is like their, their metrics, how, how they arrived at these statistics. Uh, it's a, a, a increase in crime around a 250 meter radius around the front door of the site, uh, which that's not even like a full city block, I don't think. Um, and most of this increased crime is calls to the police for like, suspicious persons and drug-related activity, whatever drug-related activity is. I don't, I mean, I've used drugs and I don't know what specifically drug-related activity is. Like jogging, people do a lot of different things when they're on drugs, jogging, going to school, having a nap. But it says calls to the police for these things, not responses from the police, not crimes where there's a victim, not convictions, just calls to the police. I don't know how many of those are responded to. There isn't even a police station downtown. They got a response from, I think from like Inglewood is where their closest station is. So it's like, how many of those calls are get, even getting responded to? And the government's like, no, got to track that as a statistic but they don't want to include in that report the statistic of how many lives it saved or the savings on the healthcare system, because it does. It saves the healthcare system. It's very expensive to treat someone's uh, hep C or HIV. And uh, in Alberta, and to my knowledge, in all of Canada, healthcare is a provincial thing, but I think it's in all the provinces. Like, it, it doesn't matter if you're an unhoused person sleeping in Central Memorial Park across from the hospital, or you're in a penthouse suite in one of those fancy new condos in the area, 
your treatment is 100% covered by Alberta Health for HIV or Hep C. And I don't know, I mean, not that I like don't want the healthcare system to support that, but I would rather my tax dollars be spent on clean needles than treating someone's Hep C. I mean, first of all, I don't really want people walking around with Hep C. It's not good for them. It's not good for the community. And it's, it's cheaper to be proactive and give people the, the support and the, and the tools and the space to live their lives safely and healthy and comfortably. I, I have to ask just because I, I mean, going back to the, 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 the angry people who say that you're enabling, I just want to know, have any of them ever been drunk? Yes. Well, some of, them were prob- some of them were probably drunk when they were yelling at us. Yeah, drunk or using. Frank. That's that's what I'm wondering about. Like, if you get the drunk guy coming up saying, "Hey, you're letting people like I oh man, I would have such a hard time taking that seriously." <laughs> yeah, and honestly, we still try to, which is like the hard part. Like, but after like a couple minutes, like, and sometimes they start off so nice too. Like, oh, what are you guys doing out here? Oh, I do similar work, <laughs> but really, their similar work is like personal white saviorism. Um, I don't know how what else to call it. Um, and then they just, yeah, I don't, it's, it's been the weirdest experience. Like any, I don't like any, um, like higher impact, um, situation that we've had with a client. Um, like if a client treated, like when you walk up to a client and they're agitated, like Ali was saying, you just okay have a great day walk away Mm -hmm. um but if you try and say have a great day and walk away to people that are trying to critique you um they just get even madder because you're not listening to them so it's 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 been a ride but and then also you're concerned like what are these if these people are approaching us like that how are they approaching our the clients how are they approaching the houseless people um which is a big concern to me to be honest um two to my knowledge, people, when doing this, have shared with us that they do um, take things into their hands personally, which I find like gravely concerning. Um, but I don't know how to. Like, you can't talk them out of it. So yeah. you just trying to remember their face or. Yeah, like the guy last week was threatening to beat up a bunch of unhoused folks um, and saying that nobody wants to see anybody in around the train stations in sleeping bags and blankets. And I'm like, well, if you can buy an apartment building and we can give everybody a house, we won't have to see it. So unless you're going to fund this solution, get the fuck out, get out. <laughs> Sorry. <Yeah. laughs> no, that's cool. I think that's, that's an entirely appropriate response because I mean, my immediate counter argument would be, and I could be wrong, but I feel like, nobody wants to sleep in a sea train station in a sleeping bag maybe i'm i'm reaching but i feel like i'm a pretty solid ground with that one. Oh, and then I at mean, the end of it he yelled at say. us for handing out sleeping bags do you remember that from our yeah, <laughs> yeah that was yeah. good that's that's lovely and um, i mean some people might want to be unhoused there are folks who don't want specific shelters some things don't fit to their lives and that's totally okay but that has to be their choice and not a result of a system failure 
because you can choose how to live your life however you want but when the system is failing you and you're living it as a result of that failure that's where we need to start fixing all of the things well especially as we're we're heading into the i mean certainly i know that in in my community and i live in the the far north end of the this the city it's 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 almost airdrie um and we've seen here a significant uptick in the number of houseless people who are choosing to be in in this area and a lot of it has to do with concerns with the well i mean certainly covid um and and being in the shelters with covid but a lot of it also has to do with the the situation inside a lot of the shelters for the for the warmer months it's safer for a lot of people to have some distance but in the as we get into the the minus numbers, um, that's that's going to be a, a very difficult situation, I think, for for a lot of people. I'm curious um, if each of you could pick two things to do differently on a societal level. Let's say that that somebody gave you a magic wand and said, "Okay, you get you get two wishes, not three, because that's cliched." But you get two. What would you? And you can't wish for another wish because that's cheating. Um, what would you? What would you want to see see change? And I'll start with with Ali again. Um, I mean, on the course of substances, for sure, safe supply. But that safe supply needs to go into grassroots initiative. We already have safe supply that's controlled in the medical field, um, and that's a barrier and we just constantly have more barriers and more barriers. Um, so definitely safe supply um, and decriminalization. Like, I mean, when I say like into grassroots hands and stuff, like I made a joke about the weed store looking like the Apple store. And I mean, like, that's fantastic, but how welcoming is that to folks who don't fit a certain demographic? Um, it's not, and they're not welcome. Like, it's just like the Apple store. It still serves as a capitalist entity that has, you need to look a certain way, act a certain way, be a certain person to enter establishments. Um, and so we need to not do that with every substance across the board, but we also need those substances to be available in whatever form they want to consume it in. It's not just handing out pills. Um, and we need spaces to be consuming that, that are essentially a bar, have a space in every neighborhood. <laughs> well, there's, 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 no, there's jurisdictions that have done that with, with significant success. Um, some, some of them are tourist destinations now. Um, yeah. Look at Amsterdam. It's killing it. So what would your second one be? Oh, I feel like I did two in there, but if I get to roll with another one, a hundred more wishes. Um, <laughs> definitely like, yeah, like um, no barriers to pop up overdose prevention sites. Like you still have to get exemptions. You still have to get all of these things. Plus you need approval from your city to put up a tent or to acquire a space. You need neighbor buy-in like, yeah, I, I get that you need your neighbors to love you, but people are dying in the streets. I think like this is an emergency 
crisis and if you don't have like how do we respond to covid in such a way that everything's changed our surgical units are converted to icu covid beds like we've we changed an entire healthcare system because there was a medical emergency and we don't even have drug testing low barrier drug testing facilities across the we don't even have one in this province, I don't think. We don't have one in the city, for sure, where you can walk down the street in Vancouver, bring your substances, they take a little bit, they test it, they tell you all of the content in it. And then people who are suppliers know what's in their content and they can sell it and sell it as that, tell you what's in it. And that reduces a lot of that harm. The only places that I've heard of any sort of testing or uh, overpriced EDM festivals, uh, and I'm going to say there's barrier to entry. Plus, you'd have to listen to the the music. So boots and cats and boots and cats and boots and cats. <laughs> <laughs> great video for that song, though. <laughs> right? Um, yeah. So I mean, OPS is every every community and decriminalize. Curtis. Um, I agree with what Ali says, like, um, no barriers for substance use, um, OPS on every corner, testing on every corner. Um, just, yeah, people should be allowed to do whatever substances they want happily, healthily, and as safely as possible. Um, and there should be the same sort of supports in place that there are for people that drink alcohol and smoke cannabis and smoke cigarettes. Um, it, sh it should just be the same. I mean, not the same sort of legal framework necessarily. Like Ali says, it should be like a street level grassroots, no barriers, but the same lack of stigma, I guess is so I guess in terms of drug use or substance use complete destigmatization and proper supports in place for people to use as healthily and safely as possible and for my second one everybody gets a house there's enough houses to go around there's more empty houses than there's people without houses we don't have a housing crisis our society has a morality crisis and is that's blunt but it's the truth yeah i think you, you hit the nail on the head with that one right there i was reading in the news today that there's the the vacancy rates in calgary are only going up uh especially when we're talking about buildings in the downtown core and you know i'm looking three months down the road we're going to be hitting the minus 20s minus 30s and if the farmer's almanac is right almost always in the, into the 40s as well and it is inconceivable to me that that we as a society can be okay heating empty spaces and letting people freeze to death on the streets like that's yeah. the, the dissonance there is just insane to me there's um an empty shelter downtown for christ's sake like the YWCA, YWCA Women's Shelter, I don't know where they've moved to, but they've got a new location somewhere in town. It's probably a big, beautiful building. Great for them. That's amazing. It's the support that should be there. 
but they're old buildings just sitting empty. Why didn't the, if like nobody wanted that, why didn't the city buy that? You know, instead of like, I love art, so I hate to do this, but instead of like another big blue ring or something like that, that doesn't do anything for anybody other than like, Hey, it might be nice to look at sometimes like buy an empty shelter and just fucking use it. Okay. Give us a shelter. <laughs> just, just pay for the space and we'll do it. Like give it to us. We'll do it. And you'll just get out of the way and it'll work. I don't know. Julia, what's your two? Hmm. Um, yeah, I was kind of thinking along the same lines as where Curtis was going, like not just housing, but also like a, an income that would be um, like, it, it blows my mind, the clients that we meet and the ones that have applied to the different services, especially like H um, and those who are denied, it actually like, it astounds me, um, which, Honestly, like it, it's so much easier to get people into housing if they have funding. Um, and so that I think that that would be the most important. Um, but the same thing, like I think if they're in housing, they should still be getting funding um, because everyone deserves the basics they do. Um, my second one was not really harm reduction related, but it is all things related. If I just had it, oh, like just one wish, um, I wish that society supported us instead of us supporting a fake social system. Um, if it worked for us, it would make so much more sense to me um, instead of us working for society. I hope that makes sense. I think it does. I think it does. And you raise an interesting point with the, I mean, I know that the, the, the universal basic income or UBI is a, a, a contentious issue for some folks, but especially when we're talking about people experiencing houselessness and addiction issues, if you figure, and, and going to the point that you made earlier, Curtis, that when we're talking about those statistics as to whether or not a police car got sent or whether or not uh, other first responders had to be sent, that doesn't happen for free. And I mean, even if somebody goes to the emergency room, you know, all you have to do is take a look at the sign right by the, the seat where you do the registration. And it says straight up, just to get in the door, you're looking at almost $1,000. So rather than, to me, it's always seemed, rather than, than running these people through a revolving door of emergency pathways, you could probably save a whole lot of money by just supporting them appropriately. Yeah, it would be a lot less traumatizing for them as well um, and a lot less dehumanizing um, and all those things. See if this system worked for them, that would be the best. Awesome. Um, for the last little bit here, and I want to say thank you guys so much for being so generous with your time here. Um, but for the last thing, I just want to sort of open floor uh, and we'll go in the, the same alphabetical order because I'm lazy. Um, is there anything else that you wished that people would hear or that you wish that they would understand? Um, so Ali, we'll go to you first. The idea of morality just has nothing to do with any of this. Like there's no right or wrong way to live your life. And there's no, like society has decided these things and they criminalize these things 
to keep people poor and to keep them oppressed. Um, if we look at like prohibition history and the racialized implications for those things um, and how you maintain incarceration rates um, against racialized folks, uh, it's disgusting and it's really hard to even talk about because it's so infuriating that it's still existing now. Like you wanna go on and on about abolishing racism, but you keep one of the most racialized systems in place, like to harm racialized folks um, and throw more and more money at it. Like you have an incredible budget piece <laughs> of Calgary. <laughs> um, that's just a thing. Like we just need to look at all of this completely different. It's obviously not working. It hasn't worked. You're just putting people in cages instead of giving them the supports and the necessities that they need to exist in this world. Stop criminalizing poverty, stop criminalizing the poor, and stop criminalizing people who use substances. It's just a vicious cycle and it's just draining mass amounts of money when you look at the cost of a jail cell or an emergency bed versus the cost of housing. It's just yeah, if you could just change your ideas on that. But that takes a lot of love and compassion and kindness and empathy, just like we need to give to everybody. Curtis, what would, you, what would be the thing that you wish people would know? Uh, the same as what Ali said. I wish people would just get it. Because, like, I don't know, harm reduction is evidence-based. Um, People use substances. Most people that use substances don't experience like problematic use or addiction issues. Like, I don't know, the rates of, of dependency with opioids aren't much different than alcohol. Like 12 to 20% of people that use these substances. So like, I just wish that I could flip a switch and undo all the decades of propaganda and lies like meth not even once that's just that's not how drugs work like it's just stupid to think that that's how things work like i don't know um yeah i just wish people would understand that a lot of people use substances People that have dependency issues, or if you want to call it addiction, whatever word you want to use, um, they need our support and love and not our judgment because it's not a moral issue. Nine times out of 10, it, that they've been through something traumatic or mental health issues. And most of that's the result of the failed system there's not the support there to begin with. So people turn to what they know and turn to what's easy. And yeah, I don't know. I just wish like there's just, there's so much evidence and just documentation of how propaganda or uh, prohibition and the war on drugs is all just propaganda and lies. Like you have people that were in like Richard Nixon's White House when he declared the war on drugs in I think it was June of 1971, June or July. 
And they're like, yeah, no, we did that because the, the uh, hippies that were anti-war protesters loved weed and black people were doing lots of heroin and we couldn't criminalize them for being anti-war or for being black. So we criminalized their behaviors. Like these people have said this on the record out loud and people just still don't get it. Like I don't, it just, I don't know. I don't know why, like we look at drug use as a moral issue when really it's the way we look at people that use drugs. It's the moral issue that needs to be fixed. Um, I was sitting with a gentleman while he was injecting um, opioids or down is what it's normally called here. Um, and he said, you know, we've always been dying. My whole life, we've like, I've lost so many friends, we've always been dying. But now that the middle class white kids are dying, somebody gives a shit. He said, it's really cool because we have services. We have some services now. But what did, why did it take that long for them to just give a shit? I gotta say, you guys are, are, are crushing the, the final lines there. <laughs> like, it's, wow. Um, Julia. Um, yeah, so maybe one thing I wish people understood um, is that if someone lives in your area and lives in your neighborhood, whether they're in a house or whether they're not, they're still your neighbor and they should be treated as such. Um, drug users are people too. It doesn't automatically make you not a person and neither does having a house. Like either way, you're still should be respected as a person, but either way you should be cared for by society. Um, like you would any neighbor, like if my neighbor was going through crap and I knew it, I would go out of my way, I'm sure to like, make sure they had whatever supports I could offer them without going over my boundaries with them. Um, and I feel that should be the way that people view things, um, especially around the SCS, um, because that's normally where we get yelled at the most <laughs> by people in the area. Um, it's just, it's your neighborhood and there's nothing like that. I think that's like, they're your neighbors. That's it. Well, I want to, I want to thank all three of you uh, for being willing to have this conversation and being willing to, quite frankly, be as, as, as candid as, as you have been. Um, this is a difficult topic, I understand, for a lot of people to talk about. And it's a difficult topic for a lot of people, obviously. I can't believe people yell at you guys. That just blows my mind. Um, but it's a difficult topic for a lot of people to understand, but I'm, I'm a big believer that any kind of understanding always starts with a conversation. And, uh, I really, really appreciate you guys being willing to, to have part of that conversation here. Um, so I just want to say thank you again. Um, and I, I look forward to following the, the work that you're doing more. Yeah. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks yeah, so thanks much. So
Now, this is not the end of the episode. And the reason for that is because the street cats were generous enough to let us come out with them on effectively a walk along where we spent some time getting to watch what they were doing and how they were doing it, as well as having some follow-up conversations and some conversations that we didn't get to have uh, when we did our Zoom interview. And I just have to say, it was probably one of the most humbling and impressive experiences of my life. In these conversations, you're going to hear the street cats talk a bit about the relationships that they've built with the houseless population and they continue to build. And as somebody who works on the front line of healthcare myself, it was absolutely amazing to see the quality of relationships that the street cats have been able to build with a population that is generally quite distrustful of other people with good reason. Now, I also need to give you a bit of a heads up that for reasons that we don't fully understand, the audio in the next 20 to 25 minutes gets a little bit squirrely. We had some very clear gremlins in the works, so the audio quality isn't that great. But the conversations and what the folks with the Street Cats are saying absolutely is, and it is really important to listen to. So here is our conversations that we had with the street cats while we were out walking around with them on the streets of downtown Calgary. I don't think last night when we were talking I mentioned um, a problem that a lot of unhoused people have to face that is something that the rest of us kind of I think take for granted is like just going to the bathroom and like having a place to do that with dignity like people complain about like oh there's like people peeing and taking crap in the back alley like oh it's out back of my business and it's like well the solution to that isn't to like stigmatize these people and and criminalize that and like find them for just trying to do a human function of going to the bathroom like we should spend that energy and money in like funding public bathrooms they should be like everywhere on maybe not every street corner that's unrealistic fantasy but like I don't know why can't there be one every couple of blocks or like certainly every couple of c-train stations along here along this strip and like I know there's one on 17th but it's usually locked there's one in um, over in East Village where they're doing all that gentrification and they keep that locked all the time unless there's like some sort of like I don't know sidewalk sale or a boat show or something out there I don't know what kind of events they do in the park there but like if there's an event they open it and it's like the argument people will make is like it's gonna cost money to pay someone to clean the bathroom well it costs money to have cops driving around finding people for doing it in a back alley and like we're out here doing outreach and there's like not anywhere like we're out here for I don't know six eight hours some nights and it's some of us have to go to the bathroom and there's nowhere for us to do that even. So it's, it just seems really counterproductive to a society to not just give people a space to do a human function. Like we have our houses to go do that in. I live a few blocks from here. I can run home and go pee if I really have to, but other folks don't have that luxury. And they should just be allowed to live their lives in, with dignity and not have to do things like go to the bathroom outside in a back alley and risk getting a fine or, you know, 
maybe they have a, a record, maybe they have a warrant out and the cop stops them for peeing outside of a business and now they're going to jail because they had to go pee. Do you think there's an argument to be made that when we're talking about the costs, I mean, because we're talking about a lot of houseless people, obviously, if they're having to use the washroom in an alley or at a park or something like that, um, these are people who are not feasibly going to have a lot of pathways to paying any fines that are issued anyways. So you're kind of, is, is there a concern that you're generating a problem where by giving people fines that they're not going to be able to pay, that cumulatively turns into a warrant and yeah, now you turn into yeah, a bigger situation. Now you're a criminal just because you had to go to the bathroom and then you couldn't pay the fine. Or like, I don't know, especially with it getting colder out, a lot of folks just ride the C-train and like, I know it's free down here downtown, but I don't know, you fall asleep or it's cold so you figure, ah, fuck it, I'll just ride to the end of line and then come back downtown. I'll just ride out there once and you do it on the wrong day, you get stopped by a cop, it's a $250 fine. I barely have the money for that. Like, and I mean, I don't know how much it is if you get caught going to the bathroom outside, but I can't imagine that one's cheap either. I don't think so. It's like, if somebody doesn't really have money for food, you think they're gonna have money for a fine? No. And any money they, they do get is, is gonna go to things like food or some drugs or, you know, drink. Yeah. Like meeting their basic needs, immediate needs. They're not gonna think, oh shit, I got a fine last week. I gotta squirrel this money away for a bit. Like, I know even I, when I like when I've gone to renew my license and stuff like that, I've been I found out about the the, the parking ticket that yeah. I forgot about, and I'm I'm fortunate enough that I don't have to deal with the somebody coming after me for that, but yeah. certainly somebody on a train or something like that. that yeah. Is there is there any other like we've seen tonight's been really quite impactful because we've seen not only that you guys are handing out a lot of stuff and you're helping a lot of people, but people see you coming from like a block away. Yeah. Is the to me that kind of speaks to the severity of the problem. What would be the thing like if what would you like to see people in city council or people in the provincial government doing to address this issue? Honestly, um, this might be the wrong way of putting it. Just give me money. Give us money. Okay. Um, I don't know. They don't seem to have solutions. And if we could be out here every night or teams of like-minded people, I mean, I was walking today with uh, my uh, wagon, like the ones we pull, to go and pick up groceries so we could have stuff to hand out. And people saw me with my wagon on my way to the store and on my way home, and they're like, hey, you're Outreach, you're that Outreach guy. Like, the community knows us. Yeah. And we've only been out here a few months, so like, we're making a difference, I feel like, because we're like taking the time to build those connections and like hang out with folks. And you know what, if we're out one week and someone's like, hey, I can't think of anything off the top of my head, but do you have this? And if we don't have it, we will move mountains to try to be able to have it the next week. 
and the week after that if it's something sustainable that we can keep having like we listen to people and we're here to help support them not tell them how to fix themselves or how to live their lives or impose any of our values or what we think that they need and I just I don't see that attitude from government so really the solution is to just fund stuff like this that's popped up mutual aid efforts like us or there's a couple other groups doing stuff like this uh, setting up like a table in the park for an afternoon and handing out food and harm reduction stuff and um, yeah I don't know just support the people that care that want to be here that are already here doing it well, I think the fact that I mean as you just said you, you walk down the street with your wagon and people are, are already recognizing you clearly what you guys are doing is building those relationships yeah. and it's it's working for the people that it needs to work for yeah uh, so I think that's that's pretty powerful it it feels good like and that's not why I'm here I'm not here to feel good about myself but it just like it feels good to like know that the impact that I want to be making in the community is there and that people are happy that someone like me and, and Allie and the rest of our group, that people like us are out here. And we're just out here because for a lot of us, we know what it's like and we just give a shit. I don't know, like all this stuff about harm reduction and like having clean gear and like knowing how to use it and knowing the safest way to use your drugs. I never knew any of that stuff when I was using tons of substances regularly and shit, if somebody had it told me, I probably would have listened. I probably wouldn't have been, you know, putting things up my nose, passing around the same dollar bill with a whole group of people because that's not safe. You know what's safe? Everybody at that table having their own clean straw and having conversations about this stuff so like I don't know it's just support people where they're at and don't judge them and just let them live their lives and it makes for a better community I don't know yeah. so Jess you've been really patient with me tonight where I've been asking you a whole lot of questions as we've been walking and we've been talking with people um, and you, you, we didn't have you on the call, the conversation that we had over the, the Zoom thing. Um, so it, what are the things that you wish people could hear? Um, well, I think we're in a really urgent situation. And a lot of the solutions and a lot of the language and a lot of the ideas that exist that are being thrown at the situation have been the same ideas for a really long time and they don't work anymore. It's time for an architect with a new blueprint. We need to get outside the same old sort of recovery versus harm reduction, pick yourself up by your bootstraps, 
individual responsibility kind of conversation that we just circle around this cul-de-sac endlessly and people are dying by the thousands, right? We've seen as many deaths from substance poisoning as from COVID across the country. You look at every jurisdiction, starts out west and goes across, right? We, we are in an urgent situation and um, we have seen the city act in the face of a recalcitrant provincial government when the stakes were high. And I really wish to see that same level of urgency, seriousness and intensity brought to this issue. We have a precedent. We've seen that public health has mattered. Let's see a consistent recognition that this public health issue is every bit as urgent. Loved ones are dying left, right and center. And it's time to take this seriously. When we were chatting with Curtis, one of the things that he said was one of the challenges is that as soon as you get, and I'm going to paraphrase what he said, so this isn't word for word, but he said one of the challenges that you get is when you involve bureaucracy and when you involve governmental stuff, you lose a lot of the relationship building that you guys are doing out here. Like One of the, the things that I commented to him is we've been out here walking around with you guys. People are coming up to you. Uh, they, they know your names, they know what the carts are, and they're comfortable uh, and they, they trust that they can ask you for help. And you compare that to how a lot of the houseless population responds to other first response agencies or other first response or support initiatives. And it's night and day. Do you, do you have any idea what a path forward would look like to make sure that groups like yours are being empowered, but at the same time you're not losing that whatever it is that's making it work so well. Yeah, that's sort of, there's a sort of scruffy, scrappy nature to what we're doing. Um, and I think that that's a really important part of the work. There isn't a shortcut or an end run to be done around relationship building. And, and folks who live in the margins understand disdain. They understand that feeling of being clientelized better than anybody. They're experts at it. So when they're approaching agencies for service and they um, for whatever reason are made to feel like a number on a piece of paper or just another problem to be solved and, the, and they keep rotating around that system again and again and again you're just not going to get the kind of outcome that leads to the revolutionary insights harm reduction brains which is it is about love it's about relationships it's about meeting people where they are and asking them where they need to go where they want to go and walking with them there it's, it's, um, it's really important to emphasize that it's the relationships that are the work. Do you think that one of the obstacles that we see with so many of these agencies, and we're certainly seeing it to some degree, I'll say it, from, the, from our, our current provincial government, where they're trying to define what the outcomes are. Do you think it's more important that the people who are dealing with these issues, the, houseless, the people who are experiencing houselessness, the people who are experiencing the, the weight of substance abuse. Do you think it's more important that they're empowered to define their own outcomes rather than people who have never lived through any of those experiences, or is there a balance to be struck? Um, I think that it's really essential that the people who have been closest to the pain are closest to the decision-making. They're, they're listened to the most closely, even when what they're saying might be hard to hear because it calls into question the ways that systems have been operating. 
systems have their own logic for why they're doing what they're doing. But if the outcome is that those impacts and those changes are not being manifested in, in real long-term support for people, success with housing, improvements in their health, then we need to go back to the drawing board again. We need systems that work for people. We cannot compel people to work for systems. Okay. And there's a tendency to try to insist on that and not move from it. Um, I'm going to ask you this question because we didn't have you on the call yesterday, but um, if you had a magic wand and you could make one, one clearly defined thing happen, what would that be? I think we need to talk about elite failure, honestly. People in the decision-making seats, people who have resources and funding decisions to make, people who, whose job it is to help to reverse the tide of, of drug policy deaths. These are political killings. These are political deaths that are happening. If there was one thing that I would focus on right now, it would be addressing the, the toxic drug supply. That's the most urgent triage level one situation that we need to turn around. We could talk a lot about all of the other issues, but, but people are dying, and we need to stop that. That's a decision that is being taken, and we can change it. Is there, and, and it's, it's interesting you say that, because that's almost universally what everybody said last night. Um, is there an argument to be made that because it is a public health emergency, and because we're talking about organic processes, that... Um, the safe supply is something that should be made available with little to no cost and managed on a medical level? So I, I understand that there's a lot of fear around taking um, access to uh, what some might de define as hard illicit substances outside of the hands of exclusive control of the medical and criminal system. But ultimately, there is never going to be a way to roll out and make accessible to, in the volume that's going to be required through the medical system alone, because that ship is too cumbersome to steer in another direction fast enough. So we need to be talking about safe supply options that are accessible at point of use by people who need them without all kinds of hoops to jump through. Otherwise, we're not going to get off the track we're on. I do think that that's going to be hard for some people to hear because there's a lot of fears around what happens in a world where yeah. people have the ability to access substances that make them feel good outside of the container of these things that we have designed to stop people but we actually have to have that conversation and we have to um, we have to step into a circumstance of discomfort enough to stop the deaths that's what's happening right now We've seen it before with alcohol prohibition. We know it can be done. It's about the political will. It's about leadership. And it's about bringing all the resources to bear in each community in order to get it done and make sure that it happens. So if I can paraphrase a little bit, and please tell me if I'm reading this wrong, it almost sounds like the message that you want to send to, to people who are hesitant about safe supply is that, in effect, your discomfort is not worse than other people dying. I think that it's fair to say that um, there's a lot of things that make me uncomfortable, a lot of choices other people make that make me uncomfortable that I would prefer that they don't do, but we don't criminalize those things. Okay. Everything that has to do with the drug war has a history in a lot of, a lot of racial discrimination, 
and a number of other really, really um, difficult histories that people don't want to talk about or they kind of tune out when you get into the, the brass tacks about why, how it came to be that all of these substances were, that were legal in this country up until the early 1900s, like, you know, how it came to be that you don't have cocaine in your Coca-Cola anymore, right? These yeah. were choices and um, it's, time to, it's time to make new ones. Like, if we could just radicalize the people who are selling and supplying people because we need that supply, like, it's not going to go away. And when you remove that supply, it just creates instability in your community. Like, there's turf wars, there's more lateral violence. It creates a new supply that is unpredictable, potentially cut for profit because capitalism is owning everybody's life. Um, so like everybody should just have all of the teaching and all of the supplies like if you're gonna buy something you should get fresh equipment to use when you're doing it and that way we can reduce HIV the spread of all of the STBVIs um, sexually transmitted bloodborne illnesses sorry <laughs> um, yeah like we just we need to take different approaches and it needs to come from grassroots from the ground because governments and policymakers are just missing the mark. Like, I think in Vancouver, they just had a giant conference of people who were going to create the supply chain. And there was some pretty big controversy because like none of them have used drugs. They don't know what the system is. They don't know what this life is like or what we're doing, like what's going on down here. And you just, it's just like, how is there such a big miss? Like, I get that you need theory and you need all of these things and taking research, but they're not listening to even just the basic research. It's just really infuriating. Like, consult the people who know what they're doing. Who's actually making a difference. On that note, one of the things that's really struck me while we've been out walking with you guys, and thank you again so much for letting us uh, tag along. Um, it's It's been really informative and really educational for me. Um, but one of the things that's really struck me is the fact that you have people who are seeing you from a block away and, and they're like, some, some of them are walking, some of them are walking briskly and some of them are straight up running to come up and get to you guys. And I said this with a couple of the other ones, but I think that really speaks to the, the relationships and the importance of, of relationships and trust that you've, you've built here. But I can only imagine that that comes with a fairly significant emotional um, output from you and your team. How do you how do you guys keep recharged? Um, well, for me, this is just where I live and die. <laughs> um, for me and a fair amount of our crew, we go to punk shows and we go and just have fun um, and just kind of debrief on our own. Um, but yeah, I don't like, I mean, at the end of the day, we're still going home to houses. Like we have a very different structure than a lot of the folks that we see that we're building trust and relationships with. And I think even just knowing that is like, well, I get to go and chill out and be warm. And a lot of our friends aren't. And that I think I don't, for me, that keeps me going because I'm hoping that one day all of our pals will have their own shelter and their own safe spaces to exist 
because you can't exist anywhere. You can't loiter in a park, which a park is for loitering. Like, it's, it's mind-blowing. Like, you can't sit anywhere, you can't eat anywhere, you can't drink anywhere if you don't look a certain way. I don't know if that really answers. Your no, question. I think it does. Is there? Is, I'm going to throw the same opportunity to Rudy in our conversation last night. Is there anything else that you wish you want people to hear? Because I, th- I think you're going to be our last conversation. I know. Yeah. I know you guys are going to go and do a bunch more walking. But is there anything else that you wish people could would hear or would know? Um, we talked a bit about de-escalation last night, um, and we talked about like the confrontations that we have a lot. But de-escalation is something that I think we can all just use in our everyday lives. Like, it's an approach and it's not necessarily something you need to implement because there's a crisis or because there's something happening. Like, be laid back, be chill, approach people in a comfortable, calm way with a calm voice. If they are in a crisis, then your approach might be a little bit different. But if you create that dynamic so that there isn't a tension, there usually isn't tension. And people will come and calm if you're calm. Um, I mean, there's so many different escalation tactics depending on what your situation is. But if it's not a crisis, still use those things and that's those skill sets. Like you're your best tool, and you show however you show up is what you're going to get and how you can support people. So I guess that kind of goes back to the take care of yourself, relax, because the battle is yet to be won <laughs> it's a long haul um people not everybody on the streets is using substances and people who use substances do have homes also and we've done other work to try and reach like other folks because yeah we're out in the streets right now but we also go to skate parks and hang out and teach people about all the various things or go to shows we've set up booths that shows like punk shows or metal shows hand out Narcan or gear, whatever people need, because it needs to be an entire community, an entire system that is changing their views and what they're doing. And that's it for another episode of The Breakdown. Now, I know that I said this earlier, but we were really, really impressed with the quality of work the the street cats are doing. So in the show notes for this episode, you're going to find a couple of places where you can donate to them. Uh, Not only do they have a GoFundMe running, but they also have uh, an email address that you can just straight up e-transfer to. And I really have to say, it would be putting your money in a place that's going to make a tremendous difference. Uh, We were so impressed with the Street Cats here at the breakdown that when the UCP decided to revoke our observer's ticket for their AGM, uh, we gave a third of that money to the Street Cats to support the incredible work that they're doing in harm reduction and in supporting the houseless population here in Calgary. Normally we would do a bit of a plug here to talk about our Patreon account. We're not gonna do this because this week, especially as we're heading into the colder months of winter, organizations like the Street Cats need all the help they can get. So if you have a little bit of extra money kicking around that you can send their way, please do, because they're an amazing group of people that are doing some amazing work. Thank you so much for your attention and thanks for paying attention to The Breakdown.